Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. As I said, we're waiting to return, and, and I've, I've been thinking about this idea of waiting quite a bit because as I read the Old Testament, waiting is often synonymous with faith, and that doesn't seem very obvious to me. Um, it's just staying in one place while time passes is, is waiting, right? But that doesn't, faith, the faithful kind of waiting must mean something more than that, Right? And so I've thought about it, and this passage in Psalm 77, I think, is, um, is related to that, because it's, it's an unfinished story. You know, you have some psalms that it's all past tense, and he says, I cried aloud to God, he rescued me, and now I praise God. Or you have some psalms that are about, um, you see the whole pro- progression, where he's, he's in a situation, and, and God comforts him, and then he's praising God at the end, and the situation is resolved. This psalm starts with him in distress, and it does end in worship, but we, we never go back to the original situation. We don't know how it ends, and I think that's actually intentional. I think Asaph, the writer of the psalm, is, is giving us a picture of an unresolved situation as we, someone who's waiting. And, and so it's a picture of how do, we, um, how do we have faith, how do we express faith as we're in an unfinished story. There's many things in our lives where we don't have specific promises that say this is going to turn out this way, or we don't know how the situation is going to be resolved. And so um, I hope very briefly to, to show how Psalm 77 can be a model as a strategy for what to do in that situation. So um, Josiah read the, the center part of the passage already. I am going to uh, read the first stanza right now, which we haven't read, and then we'll get into, get into it uh, from there. Before I do, let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you that we can come to you uh, by grace and receive from your hands unmerited favor. Lord, um, I ask this morning that you would give me confidence to speak your word. I ask that you would give all of us soft hearts to receive your word. And Lord, I pray that what happens here this morning um, would change our hearts and it would ripple out into eternity. We pray all of this to the glory of your son's name. Amen. So, Psalm 77, um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 to get started. So he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So obviously, uh, this guy's in a, <clears throat> in a pretty distressing situation. Um, which just kind of begs the question, why is this included? What would we be missing if we didn't have this psalm or we didn't have this beginning to the psalm? You know, the psalms are in the Bible. They're the, they're the worship book of the Old Testament. They're teaching us how to worship and praise God. But I think there's, there's more than that to it, right? The psalms are not formulaic. 
had this conversation with Jason earlier about what would be the sturdiest place to put my computer, and I did not believe him. And so, we're good. It's going to stay there from now on. Uh, that's a new one. That's never happened to me before. So, as I was saying, the Psalms are not formulaic. They express the full range of human experience. And so, even experiences like that. Um, you know, if, if the Psalms were... Um, if the Psalms were just formulaic worship songs, right, we, we wouldn't get the richness and complexity that we actually see. Because our human lives are actually complex. We have a whole range of experience and emotions in our actual life. And so the Psalms are this, this thing where you get real life that comes in contact with the real God. And the result is a rich and nuanced and complex worship an explosive kind of worship that actually has all the contours of real life and all the power and truth of heaven mixed into one. And so when we have a psalm like this and we see someone who is clearly in deep distress, um, part of why it's here is to encourage us that regardless of what situation we are in, God is not unaware, God is not surprised, even if we are surprised by our situation, even if we are taken off guard that we could be in such a despairing situation, God is not surprised. And he actually has something for us in situations like this. And so the first, first thing to notice is so obvious, but it's so easily overlooked. It's we should cry aloud to God. We should seek him regardless of what our situation is. How, how often do we actually miss out on what God has for us? We miss out on the peace and the joy that God has for those in Christ because we simply don't take that first step of seeking him. We have this attitude of, well, I'll, I'll handle this one on my own. Um, I think it was John Newton that said something like, we grow weary of relating to God by grace. We grow weary of relating to God solely by grace. So we know, yes, you carried me through so much. I know you saved me by grace, but in this situation, can I at least just get a participation trophy? Like, can I get some credit? Can I do something for myself here? And so we enter into these situations, and, and although it's obvious, we don't do this first step of seeking the Lord. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you're like, that's not my current situation. Maybe I've had that in the past. I only have, like, mildly distressing situations in my life at this moment. You know, I, I actually, for a long time, really struggled with passages like this, because I I considered myself someone who didn't really have much suffering in my life. Um, and so I'm reading the Bible, and there's all these passages about suffering. And I'm, I've, I've never experienced that. I haven't lost someone close to me. I haven't had a serious illness. I haven't had irreparably broken relationships. And, and I know a lot of people around me that have. And so it feels wrong to, to apply the word suffering to anything going on in my life. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is Going to China solved that problem for me, not because we had a lot of acute, severe suffering, although Sarah and I did walk through some, some deep waters. But what I actually realized is I don't handle small sufferings well. I don't actually handle many trials, if I can say that. Um, and what going to China did was like all of the, the normal inconveniences and frustrations and misunderstandings of life just got turned up to 11. And so we, we welcomed all of these things into our life that are, um, 
each one of them by themselves rather minor, rather um, trivial. But the accumulated effect of all of them building up is actually just as catastrophic. It has the same effect. And the effect is that suffering, whether it's this acute, deep despair or the accumulated trials of daily life in this world, if not taken to God, clouds our view of him. We, we start to be unable to see the glory of God. And the sneaking suspicions that he's not good or he's not real grow in our mind because these trials press doubts upon us. They press questions upon our hearts. And so whether you're today you actually can relate to Psalm 77 or you have small situations, the the application is the same. You should seek the Lord. You should cry aloud to God in your particular situation. And so I learned that in China, not only because we exposed ourselves to, to more of that kind of um, trivial, small suffering, but because I also recognize that being out of my normal context, that, that I don't run to God, because all of the things I normally ran to were taken away. And I did not realize how many crutches propped up my joy. And all of the normal refuges that, that I can take advantage of in a materialistic, wealthy culture like America were taken away. Except for Netflix. That worked most days. Um, but I realized that I don't, I don't handle these things well. And so when I didn't have the opportunity to run to the same comforts, I... I responded even more poorly. And so that um, made me realize that maybe these, these passages in the Bible about suffering actually have something to say to me, even if I'm not facing a cancer diagnosis, or even if I'm not um, dealing with the loss of a relationship. And so the, uh, I think Psalm 77 is written in a way that's vague, and that's unfinished, that actually invites us, regardless of our situation, to come and to see a model for how to engage in the midst of suffering, how to seek the Lord. So first thing is to, is to cry aloud to God. The second thing is to get to the root of your question. And this will read um, verses 4 to 10. Get to the heart of your question. So Asaph, the writer of the psalm, continues, You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago, and I said, Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then he said, I will appeal to this, to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. So what is going on here? What is Asaph showing us? If this is a model for how to seek the Lord in suffering, what is the point of this section? Um, I think that he is he's telling us, he's showing us what is actually uh, in his heart. Now, there's some difficulty with this passage because verse 10 is, is difficult to translate. It's one of those weird things in Hebrew where they don't have vowels, and so you have to put the vowels in when you're reading it. And most of the times it's obvious, and sometimes it's not. And this is one of those not obvious 
times. And I actually think the ESV gets it wrong. Um, it doesn't really matter because the way the ESV writes it goes with the second half and the way the other reading would, would fit with the first half. But I think the first half is actually the, the second reading, which is, um, this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I think that reading actually fits better. I think there's, there's a better evidence for it. So in this sense, his questions are not rhetorical questions that are, are positive where he's saying, has the Lord forgotten to be gracious? In, in essence, a rhetorical question begging the, the answer, no, he hasn't forgotten to be gracious. God is gracious. That's who he is. I think this is actually Asaph saying, the root of my question is, I feel like God has forgotten to be gracious. And it feels like God has changed. I read about who God is. He tells me that he's abounding in steadfast love, that he's compassionate and mercy. But my situation is teaching me something else. I don't see compassion. I don't see or feel steadfast love. And it feels like God has changed. The I am who I am is no longer who he is. And that's the root of his, his grief. That he, he's looking at his situation. He's saying, this doesn't add up. Where are you, God? Now, why would he put this in the psalm? You know, we tend to not be very, very good at this, right? We, in our circle of churches, we're great at talking about sin. We're not great about talking about our own doubts in the midst of suffering. Um, from what I know about Jason, he's better at it, but maybe you guys are saying at this point, you, got, you don't know Jason that well. But my experience, uh, my experience has been that um, we don't often do a good job of, of articulating what is actually going on in our hearts. And so Asaph is showing us that once we cry aloud to God, we should search what's actually going on underneath. That we see this inordinate reaction on the surface. We see sin on the surface sometimes. We see despair on the surface. And he's saying, what is underneath? If you can concisely and simply put, what is the belief underneath that? What would you say? And he says, when I boil it down, it feels like God has changed. Now, I, I don't want to be flippant. If you are, if you're depressed, if you've gone through that, I don't want to act like it's a simple answer. Like, take two verses, call me in the morning. And that, like, I, I feel like I've tasted enough of that to know that it doesn't feel simple when you're in the midst of it. But the same time, the journey through depression towards joy, the journey, journey out of darkness like this, is at least in part replacing unbelief with faith. You know, when we see him, we will not be depressed. When we see him for who he is, we will not be despairing. Which means that if we despair right now, it means at least in part that we do not see him for who he is. And that may seem simplistic, but I, but I encourage you that this is actually where Asaph is, and this is what he is he's doing. He's saying... I'm going to be honest about my heartfelt question and see that there's actually some unbelief down here. That there's some pieces of my heart where I don't think God is who he says he is. And so, um, regardless of your situation, try to articulate it. I think if I had articulated my belief when I was in China dealing with the, the accumulated stress of being misunderstood or... Um, getting car sick in the back of taxis or 
There's no coffee shops open before 9 a.m. Like, what do they expect me to do? It's like, what is this place? And so, um, you know, all of those different things, being told for the 2,000th time that our child is cold when she's sweating, um, being asked how much money we make by strangers constantly, um, and I could go on with all of these things that each one by itself is trivial, but I think if I had articulated my belief, uh, it would sound like the anti-Psalm 23. I don't know if you're familiar with anti-Psalms, but they're really interesting. People rewrite the Psalms from an unbeliever's perspective, whereas if God does not exist. And so when I read this, it, it was convicting because this fit me better. So the first few verses of the anti-Psalm 23 say, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert, and I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. So if you get to the place of being able to articulate what your actual belief is, as a Christian, you've, you've read passages like Psalm 23 enough that you're 90% of the way there if you're able to articulate what you're actually believing. Because you can say, I do have a shepherd. I do have a shepherd that leads me to rest, that, that wants to restore my soul. But often we, we short-circuit the process if we're not honest about where our heart actually is. And Asaph is showing us, I think, that how to do that, how to articulate what the root of the question is. But immediately after he says that, he turns into, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. And this is the heart of the psalm. This is the, the power where he's, he goes from crying aloud to God to getting to the root of his question, and now he remembers who God is. Again, this seems obvious, right? This is Christianity 101. We remember. You guys come together every Sunday to remember who God is to remember Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. We do the Lord's Supper to remember him. This is what he's commanded us to do. Christianity is a faith that, that is looking forward to promises that God has given us, but it's also rooted and grounded in, secured in, remembering what he has done in the past. Um, and so Asaph remembers what God has done. And so he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm redeemed, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Joseph, of Jacob and Joseph. And so, um, John Piper, in talking about this psalm, points out that we often complain as Christians, I know this in my head, but I don't really feel it in my heart. Have you said that before? Have you been in that situation where, like, I know these truths about God, but it's not affecting me. I don't, I'm not filled with joy and affection for Christ right now. It's not affecting my situation. And he says... Look at what Asaph does four times in two verses. He says he remembers, he remembers, he meditates, he ponders. This is not a flippant, yeah, I know, I know God's in control. But that doesn't, that's not affecting my heart right now. He's actually doing the work of thinking deeply 
of spending time, of lingering over these truths, of working them into his heart so that his doubt and his questions, his despair is actually overwhelmed with worship. Again, his situation is not resolved. We don't know what happens, but we do know that he ends this psalm with this powerful moment of worship, recounting what God has done in the Exodus. And it's interesting because it seems that the Asaph's situation makes him feel hopeless and powerless, right? He, he's longing for something. It's, it's a prolonged situation. He's saying, how um, have you forgotten to be gracious? Will it, your promise be at an end for all time? And so it seems like this is a long, drawn-out thing that's making him feel like, I don't think this will change. I don't feel like I have any power to change this situation. And Asaph goes to a point in history where the people of Israel had the Egyptian army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side, and they felt hopeless and powerless. And God had come and he had promised things to them. He said he would rescue them. And in that moment, the people are, are trapped between death and the water, and they're saying, God, have you changed your mind? Have you changed You just brought us out here to die. And Asaph is saying, in that situation, I remember that God was faithful, that God actually did something miraculous, and he made a way where there was no way. And so in my situation, I can remember that I have a powerful and faithful Redeemer God. So his meditating is actually tailored to his particular situation. It's not just random there's something particular about who God is that he's, he's focusing on. Now, we are told to do this in the New Testament, right? This is not new information. Now, um, 2 Corinthians 1 has become really dear to me. Uh, it's an amazing passage of Paul in the midst of trial and explaining um, how, he, how he learned to rely on God. So he says, uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the hardship that I experienced in Asia. I thought that I had received a death sentence. So Paul is saying, I thought I was going to die. I thought I was facing death. And a few verses later, he says, this happened so that I would rely not on myself, but on him who raises the dead. So Paul's situation is that he, he's facing death. And the thing that he remembers about God is that God raised Jesus from the dead and promises resurrection for us. Now, Paul has written books about this. He's, this is not new information for him. But in the moment of his trial where death seems imminent, he actually needs to remember it. Do you think that Paul just had this like, oh, Jesus resurrected from the dead. What am I so worried about? Do you think it was that quick? Do you think it was that simple for him? I I don't think it was. I think that he probably wrestled with it. There's a a scholar named Ben Myers who's done some work recently on how the church fathers would have understood the death and resurrection of Christ. And as I listened to it, it made me think that this probably is what Paul was thinking as he was facing death, what he actually worked through his mind. So Ben Myers says that the, the church fathers understood it something like we identify with Adam, right? We are, we are somehow connected with him in, in our humanity, which means that we all die because in Adam all 
have sinned and all die. And Paul knew this, right? So he knows that as he's facing death, it's not an uncommon, it's not a new situation. And he also knows that, that God seeks to save his people from death. But God is the source of life, right? God is the one who spoke life into being. So how could life itself, the, the spark of life, somehow enter into death where, where we're in bondage to death? It's impossible, because it's humans who die. It's not God who dies. It's impossible, right, for God, who's the one whose life in his very essence, to enter into death to rescue us. Unless, unless that he became human, and, and as if his human flesh was a door through which God, the author of life himself, could step down into death. So Jesus descended from heaven down onto the earth, not just to be a man, but to descend even lower, to walk every step down into Sheol. And as his body was ripped apart, the author of life himself entered into death and the door slammed shut behind him. And in that moment, death discovered that he could not hold this Jesus. Death discovered that he did not deserve to die. Death discovered that life itself from inside the tomb would break death. And on the third day, we see Jesus coming out and we, we realize that he's not alone. That he went into death to carry his bride out of death. And so all those, like Paul and like us, that are willing to be carried by our Savior Jesus will be carried out of death on that final day. Not just back up into this world, but all the steps back up into the presence of God, higher than we could even imagine, so that we realize these, these tents, they are, they are momentary. And death is, death is just a doorway. It is still a reality for us, but Paul must have realized that, that Jesus, that God, the one who raises the dead, is reliable. I can rely on him because he raised Jesus from the dead. And so that's something what I think that Paul would have been remembering and pondering and meditating as he is facing death himself. I think for me personally in our time in China, not only Psalm 23 and passages like that, but 2 Corinthians 4 has been powerful to me. So, so my unbelief in some degree is that I think I deserve a certain amount of frustration-free, pain-free, productive days. And so when I am inconvenienced, when I am misunderstood, when I feel very unproductive, I feel like God has let me down, and then I think, this is pointless. What are we even doing here? And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that this is a, we have a treasure of the gospel, but it's in a jar of clay. And why should a jar of clay expect to be treated with respect and dignity? In fact, Paul says that we are daily given over to death, which I resonated with living in China. There's a lot of moments where it felt like daily being given over to death. But what I needed to remember was that as death is at work in us, it's so that life is at work in other people. So we have this exchange going on that we willingly put ourselves in the way of adversity and affliction so that we can communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ so that life can be at work in other people. So we willingly experience suffering. Suffering is not something to be avoided necessarily. Suffering is actually necessary 
as we make this exchange of our death dying to ourselves daily so that others may live. But why would a Christian be willing to make this exchange? Well, because Christ has made this exchange for us. Death has worked in him so that life could be at work in us. And not just momentary life, eternal life. So as we go through, whether it's mini trials or mega trials, we can say with Paul, these are light momentary afflictions, not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory that's being stored up for us. And that's what I needed to remember, that, that all of these things, they, are, they have a purpose. All of these many trials that accumulate and cloud my view of God, they have a purpose. They're actually part of my mission, that if I were to avoid this pain and frustration, I would actually be avoiding the very thing God has called us to. So, so what is it in your situation? What is the thing that, that speaks to your particular concoction of affliction and adversity? What, what, from what angle do you need to look at redemption? What do you need to remember about who God is and what he's done that speaks to and corrects the unbelief in your heart? Where has suffering and trials and just the exhaustion of living in this world pressed doubts and questions upon your mind that you no longer see him clearly for who he is? And what about the gospel can you remember in this moment? What can you turn to and say, this is the God, the only one who is holy? You know, I recently heard, a, um, recently heard an illustration about faith uh, that is so good, I just have to uh, use it as well. And so I'm not even going to pretend that, that I'm not ripping this from someone else. But it's so good um, and so helpful for me in this situation. You know, if you, um, if you go to the doctor and he tells you you have hypertension and you have diabetes and you are uh, at risk of having a heart attack and stroke, and actually if you continue eating red meat, it's very likely that you will um, experience a catastrophic heart attack or stroke. Now, he shows you data. He shows you the data about your own body, and he shows you about people who are in your situation. He says, if there's no dietary change, this is what's likely to happen. In this percentage of cases, this is what will happen. And you're convinced by the evidence. You see the evidence clearly. Now, you go to your friend's barbecue, and you see with your eyes steaks on the grill and sausages on the grill, and you hear them sizzle with your ears, and you smell this heat and fat and protein coming together to make something delicious. And for a moment, you think that you can even taste it. And you say in that moment, did the doctor really say that if I eat of it, I will die? And what is faith in that moment? If you believe the doctor, what do you have to do? You need to think You need to think about the evidence. You need to remember what he said. You remember what is actually true. You see something with your eyes. You smell something. You hear something. But you need to remember the evidence. And that's what Asaph is doing. Suffering, whether it's many trials or mega trials, presses questions upon us that makes us forget who God is. And this this is Christianity 101. This is not new information. But it's so often we miss out We don't make that head-to-heart transfer because we don't take the time to think and remember. So what is it that is pressing upon you? What is clouding your view of who God is? 
I don't know what your particular situation is, but I know that there's something about who God is. I know that there's something about what he's done, particularly in the gospel, that speaks to your situation, that will turn your eyes to him and your doubt, your despair will be overwhelmed into worship sooner or later. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have, um, you have descended into the grave for us, that death worked in you so that life could be at work in us. Father, I pray that um, all the truths of the gospel, of what you've done on the cross, would be real to us so that we would see you for who you are. Lord, if there are people here this morning who are, who are despairing, who are in a dark uh, pit of despair, I ask, Lord, that you would come to them through your spirit, comfort them, restore their souls. We pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.